So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 2. We're going to finish up chapter 2 and go into chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we come to spend time in your word and ask that you would speak to us tonight. And Lord, you know exactly what we're going through. We thank you that you're our Father. We ask that you would restore our soul, that we could take joy in our salvation. We could find ourselves coming into that ultimate security that you provide. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes we're looking for security in the wrong places. Uh, Our culture is definitely in a place where we're concerned about security. Whether it's a home security and there's an alarm system and cameras that are installed, or it's identity theft, that's something that you have to be concerned about, your social security number being uh, stolen, or if it's uh, your car and saying, I need to make sure that I've got an alarm system that's placed upon my car to all these terrorist attacks that have been taking place and the security that's being put in place in the airport. But there's only one place that we're ultimately going to find security, and that's in the Lord. So what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is there is ultimate security that is provided for us. The first is in relationships inside of the body of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at that at the end of chapter 2. And then as we go into chapter 3, that there's security found in rejoicing in the Lord. Isn't that the ultimate place that we find uh, security in the Lord is, is rejoicing in him? And then we're going to, to look at the fact that there is security in running the race by forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward to the things that, that lie ahead. So join me in verse 19. It says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. If you remember, Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter to the church of Philippi, which is in Greece. And he's saying, I'm going to send Timothy to you because I can't come, because I'm in, in prison. And we're going to find that there is encouragement and there's security inside of the body of Christ, and specifically Timothy being sent to the church of Philippi. Now, I want to be clear on this that ultimately we look to the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? That's who we look to. But Jesus has created the body. The body is his bride, is his hands and feet. And we find great stability and encouragement in the body of Christ when it's put in its proper place. Don't make brothers and sisters in Christ your savior. They're not. Don't, Don't follow them, follow Jesus Christ. But at the same time, Don't go through your Christian life thinking, I don't need other believers. Because here Paul is going to find great security in the fact that I can't go do the ministry physically myself, but I can send Timothy at this point. And he said, he's going to come to you shortly to know your state. We live in such a blessed time with technology. There's a fallen aspect to it, but there's also a, a redeemed aspect to it. I mean, here, Timothy had to go and travel to the church of Philippi, travel back to the apostle Paul for Paul to really know how they're doing. What do we need to do if we want to see how a missionary is doing across the world? Well, we get on WhatsApp and we send them a text. We make a phone call. We FaceTime them. We Skype. And it's all free. Can you imagine being a missionary even 20 years ago in a remote place and how hard it was to 
wait for mail to come if it wasn't going to get stolen. And now there's instant communication uh, with the world. Send somebody a Facebook message. But Paul really had to do snail mail here. This was the old-fashioned way. He had to send Timothy to know the state of the church of Philippi. So we learn more about Timothy. It says, For I know no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. You may remember back to Acts chapter 16. Paul comes and he finds Timothy. Acts 16 verse 1 says, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He grew up in a mixed household where his mom was Jewish, but his father was Greek, was a Gentile. Here comes Paul and he says, Timothy, why don't you come and travel with me? And he became a disciple of Paul, someone that Paul mentored. And here Paul says, he says, he's the only one who's like-minded. He's the only one that I can trust that's going to come and care for your state. That really kind of smacks you in the face, doesn't it? When you think of the Apostle Paul, how many years that he served, how many years that he knew the Lord, how many men that served with him. But he said, there's only one that's like-minded. There's only one that doesn't have his own agenda. There's only one that is really in that place where I can trust that he's going to come and care for your state, and it's this man, Timothy. He goes on to comment on the rest. He says, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. So Paul couldn't send others because deep down he knew that they were seeking their own interest instead of seeking Christ. It must be a lot easier to serve ourselves with the mask of serving others. So we think that we're serving others, but there's a false motivation of selfishness because here, Paul says all the rest, they're seeking their own instead of seeking Christ. Goes on in verse 22, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. He says, you know his character. You're familiar with Timothy. He's someone that you can receive from. Isn't it easier to receive from somebody where you know their character. You know they're not perfect, but they're trustworthy. So you can allow them to speak into your life. You can receive from them. So that's what Paul's saying. You know his character. And you know that he served with me as a son in the faith. God gives us an example of relationships in the scripture. So if there's security in relationships, then what kind of relationships are we to have inside of the body of Christ? I think it's important to have a Paul in your life, someone who's walked further, walked longer in the relationship with the Lord. If someone has gone through something that you're headed into, they can give you a lot of perspective. Even if it's a college course. Like, yeah, I took that college course. I had that same professor. Here's the lowdown. Here's what you should expect. Yeah, I've been in this career field for, for some time. Yeah, this is the things that you should, should look out for. How much more in life? They've already raised kids. They've walked with the Lord longer. They've seen more presidents come and go. They just, they've got that maturity about them. You want to have a Paul in your life. But then you also want to have a Timothy in your life, someone younger that you can invest in, that you can pour into. Every one of us have been saved longer than somebody else. Have you been saved for a month? There's someone who's been saved for a week, right? There's somebody else that you can be able to invest in, have a, a son in the faith. And then you should have a Barnabas. Paul had a Barnabas. A Barnabas was a peer, someone who ministered to Paul as well, 
but it wasn't someone who was a mentor. It was someone that was on the same level, if you would, with them. And that's very important. You know, I've been in this church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, now for 16 years. I came on staff when I was 21 years old, and I've been able to go through the full gamut of relationships in this regard. There's men in the church that are like Paul's uh, to me. Fellow pastors, you know, I think of Pastor Robert. He was my boss when I first uh, came on staff, and he's served here at RMC for now over 20 years, and I have a great, great respect for him. And he's been a part of my daily life now for for 16 years. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of security in that relationship. I don't, I don't look to Robert. I look to Jesus, but I'm thankful for him. He's been a huge blessing inside of my life. There's young men that were in the junior high ministry when I was the junior high pastor. They're not junior hires anymore. They're grown up. They're married, you know. I know one young man that's been able to walk with him as he's gone through junior high, high school, did his wedding, and they just had their fourth child. I was like, man, that was awesome. What a joy to be able to be here for 16 years and, and see someone grow in the Lord like that and grow inside of, of maturity. And I'm, I'm sure whether it's in this church or outside of this church, you have that same testimony about relationships inside of, of the body of Christ. But I also know relationships are not always easy. Right? Sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes they test us. We sin against others and people sin against us, but it's always worth it to stay planted in the house of God. And the house of God's not a building, the house of God is in relationship. Paul is better because of his relationship with Timothy. The church of Philippi is stronger because of Timothy's relationship with Paul. There's a more dynamic ministry because it's Paul and Timothy. Maybe God has called you to a particular way to serve. It's always better done in twos. Jesus sent the disciples out in twos. Because you never know at any given moment when you find yourself in prison, when you find yourself in a hospital bed, or in a coffin, or getting cremated, right? You can't go and fulfill the ministry, and now it's time for the Timothy to step in and to take that ministry. Always looking to see people get trained up. In verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. His circumstances are in the Lord's hands. We see the second relationship. Yet I consider it necessary to send you to uh, send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. That's quite a resume. He's a brother in Christ to Paul. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. This gives us the idea that God's work is not always easy. Sometimes it's just that. It is work where you have to put yourself to the task. It's work. It's warfare. He's a fellow worker. He's a a fellow soldier. He's also going to be the messenger, and he's the one that ministered to Paul's need. The church of Philippi set Epaphroditus to Paul to minister to him. In verse 26, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because he heard, because you heard, let me back up there, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So catch this. He goes to minister to Paul. In doing so, he gets sick. We don't know what he gets sick with, if it's malaria, typhoid fever, 
Who knows what it was? But on his mission to go and encourage Paul, he, he gets sick. So that causes heartache inside of the church of Philippi. They're like, oh man, how is he doing? In verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Can you imagine Paul? He's in prison. The church of Philippi sends Epaphroditus to come and encourage him. Then Epaphroditus gets sick, and he's in ICU at the hospital. And he's about ready to die. And Paul's thinking, man, if he dies, it's going to be sorrow upon upon sorrow. So verse 28, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. So this is going to be a tremendous reunion, and Paul knows it. When Epaphroditus comes back to the church of Philippi, great rejoicing. So Epaphroditus is going to go with Timothy, that model of, of twos. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. He's like, man, when, when you see Epaphroditus, give him a hero's welcome. He risked his life for, for God's work. He almost died. He didn't even consider himself in the midst of this. He's not regarding his own life. So if you're taking notes tonight, here's the first thing that we see. In ultimate security, it's found in relationships in the body. We, we find relationships inside of the body of Christ that cause us to experience security. But also, we find security in rejoicing. Security in relationships, but security in rejoicing. So that's point number two, is security in rejoicing. It brings us to verse one of chapter three. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Paul says, finally, conclusion, I'm wrapping things up, and he goes on for two more chapters. Like every good preacher does, right? Like, you know, you're waiting for those words for me to say, in conclusion. That may not mean anything, to be quite honest, right? Could be 15 more minutes. I mean, you got to have a good conclusion. That's what they teach you in Bible college and, and seminary. So, so here's Paul, and he's saying, well, finally, here's, here's my last point to you guys. And it's only four chapters long, and he goes on for two more chapters. But this is what he's going to bring him to, rejoice in the Lord. Do you remember our outline of Philippians? It's been a few weeks since we've been in Philippians. Three letters, one word, joy. Jesus, others, you. And it has to do with our mindset. The word mind is used a lot in this theme of Philippians. It's what we think about. My pastor growing up would always say, if you change your mind... God will change your heart. But if you don't change your mind, God won't change your heart. If you don't choose this biblical mindset, if I don't choose this biblical mindset, we won't experience joy. So the first thing in Philippians is Jesus, a mindset fixed on Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The second is to be others-centered, to think about others over myself. And that was chapter two, to esteem other people's needs over my own. If we live our lives that way, Jesus first, then others, then finally, you. We become last after Jesus and others. 
And in these last two chapters, we are going to see a biblical mindset of how we are to think about ourselves. What what are we to think about our own lives? And the first is to rejoice in the Lord. What does the word rejoice mean? It means to take joy again. There's a couple of boys over in children's ministry before service that were playing air hockey. Little four-year-old boys, three- and four-year-old boys, looked like they'd never been on the air hockey table before. Just tall enough to reach their arms and experience the puck. And you should have seen it when the first one made a goal. They were just laughing and laughing and laughing. So much joy, right? They were experiencing it. They were entering into it. And so, so here, joy is to enter in and to experience, but to do it again, over and over and over again. So who God is, our relationship with him, and to say, God, I'm taking joy in you. I'm rejoicing in you. You're my father. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You so graciously give me daily bread. And Paul here, through the Holy Spirit, is commanding. He's saying, rejoice in the Lord. That this is what you're to do, church. And then he says, for the same thing to write to you is not tedious, but it's safe. Paul, Paul's saying, I don't mind. I'm not going to apologize by the fact that I'm telling you again to rejoice in the Lord. Parents, how many times do you have to tell your, your kids something that's very, very important? Thousands. It's not hundreds. It's thousands, right? Can I get a, anybody in agreement with that? I mean, how many times in the course of raising a child do you say, look both ways before you cross the street, right? It's not just when they're toddlers. As they continue to, to grow up, you've got to remind them, hey, you, you might want to look both ways before you, you, the cross street. You probably have some of your top five sayings, moms, dads, that you say over and over and over again because they're important to, to share with your children. Like, I brought you into the world and I'll take you out, right? <laughs> Maybe not, but possibly And here Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you again, because you need to hear it. Because repetition is the mother of all teachers. You need to rejoice in the Lord. Our souls were designed to take joy in something. And ultimately, if we don't put our joy in the Lord, it's going to result in a letdown. And Paul says here something very important. I think it's very insightful. Don't miss it. He says, for you, it is safe. There is security in rejoicing in the Lord. If your rejoicing is in anything other than your relationship with the Lord, you will be disappointed. Think about the disciples. They got sent out on their first real-life ministry experience. They got to go from the lecture to the lab, and they come back, and they say, Jesus is incredible. Demons were being cast out. We experienced all these crazy things. And Well, how did Jesus respond? He said, guys, take it easy. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning in a moment. Don't get prideful because the Father's using your life. But instead, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus was teaching them to rejoice in their relationship with the Lord and something that could never be taken from them, and that was their salvation. There's a lot of ups and downs in life, isn't there? And especially there's seasons where we feel like God's using our lives. And there's other seasons where it feels like an absolute wilderness. And if we're rejoicing in what God does through our lives, there'll be ups and downs. But salvation is consistent. 
Maybe it's in relationships. Relationships go up and down, don't they? Human relationships. As much as we find blessing and security in the body of Christ, it's secondary to rejoicing in the Lord. People come and go. Even as wonderful as marriage is, ultimately, we're going to bury our spouse potentially. Where's your joy when your spouse passes away? Where's your joy when your kids move out of the house? Where's your joy if God takes one of your kids to go home to be with the Lord? So there has to be a place where we say, I take joy in my marriage, I take joy in my children, but ultimately, my joy's in the Lord. Maybe the joy's in the job. God's blessed you with a really great job that you love going to, and you take joy in that. What happens if you lose your job? See, there's a greater security than taking joy in our job, though we can be thankful for that to say, my joy is found in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And that is the ultimate place of security because nothing and no one can touch it. Paul warns about someone who is wanting to take your joy away from you. It says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Normally, Gentiles were called dogs by Jews. Didn't like Gentiles. But here, Paul is calling the Judaizers, the legalists, dogs. And we know that because he goes on to talk about circumcision and he uses the word mutilation. He's speaking of those that would come into a Gentile church and saying, that's great that you trust in Christ for salvation. That's great that you take joy in Jesus. But if you're really committed to following Christ, then you have to be circumcised. Here's a system of rules. Here's a system of regulations. And that's always going to be an enemy to our joy in the Lord. I think we need to take this warning to heart. This is a warning. The Holy Spirit's giving us a warning here. Because our flesh will always gravitate towards legalism because it gives a way for us to be glorified. And when we first came to know Christ as our Savior, what were we stoked about? Jesus, our salvation, our relationship with him. And over time, it's easy to put our confidence in our Bible reading. And we feel like, well, God loves me more because I read my Bible today. Or God's going to bless me because I've gotten my life in line with his ways. Or I'm going to church on a, on a Wednesday night. And that's a slippery roller coaster. And why? Because it either leads to pride, because you fulfilled the system of works, or it leads to condemnation. And it goes from being Christ-based on what he's done to now Eric-based on what I've done. And so this was coming into the church to steal them of their joy and their confidence in Jesus. Is there a place for works? Absolutely. Is there a place for reading your Bible? For sure. But it's the attitude of the heart. I'm doing this because I've been received by Christ. I know that God loves me whether I read my Bible or not. And it brings to a whole different kind of sweetness in our works unto the Lord, in our attendance of church, in reading God's word. Does that make sense? I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will face this at some point in your Christian journey. There will be a brother or sister in Christ that you trust to a great degree, and they'll go, you know what, I'm so thankful that you go to a church that teaches the Bible it's centered on Jesus, and that's wonderful, but it's time for you to get the training wheels off. It's time for you to grow past the Legos 
And here's a little system for you. And if you follow this system, I can guarantee that you're going to be more like Christ. I'm I'm going to guarantee all of these different things in your life. And, you know, I can tell that you really are a little more serious than the rest of those at Rocky Mountain Calvary or the rest of the body of Christ, you know. And most of the time, they'll present it in a way that their little niche group is the only ones that has the market. They'll say, we've got the market on this, so come follow follow our teaching. If we're teaching the Bible here at RMC, and I know there's a lot of other really good churches in town that are teaching the Bible as well, guess what? We don't have the little market on truth. Amen? We're in this journey together with all the other churches in Colorado Springs and throughout the world that love and follow Jesus Christ. And we're broken, and we need Jesus just as much as the day that we got saved. And it sounds good at first, but ultimately it's going to rob you from your joy because it's based on you instead of based on what Christ has done. Paul goes on to explain this. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is a huge slap in the face to Jews who are trusting in circumcision. It was a big deal to Jews going back to the Old Testament. They were commanded by God to be circumcised. Now Paul's saying this is true biblical circumcision. It's not an outward mark on your flesh, but it's a heart that's been changed by God. It's a heart that's been transformed by the Lord. And he says, this is true circumcision if you worship God in in the Spirit. Does your spirit worship God? Does your spirit bear witness with the Holy Spirit that he's your father? Then you're truly circumcised. Do you rejoice in Jesus Christ? Are you thankful that you're saved? Are you thankful the work that he's done? The work that he's going to do when he returns? Then you're truly circumcised. Do you have no confidence in the flesh? Have you come to say, you know, I can't trust myself. My my works are filthy rags. I'm broken. I need the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you're the true circumcision. Paul goes on to share his own story. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So he's like, if you want to go down this road where you're going to trust in your own works and brag in your own works, Paul's like, I was pretty good. Circumcised the eighth day. According to the law, that's when you were supposed to be circumcised. And Paul did that. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. We know from studying First and Second Samuel, the first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was also the only tribe that stayed loyal to David and the tribe of Judah when Israel was divided. This was bragging rights to be from the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. There's only 6,000 Pharisees in all of Israel. They were devoted to fulfilling the minutia of the law, every little detail of the law. We know that they would tithe on their herbs in their garden. So they've got their mint in their garden. And they're like, well, I've got to give 10% to God. But it was all external-based. It was all about cleaning up the outside instead of Jesus transforming the heart. And Jesus had the most harsh words for who? The Pharisees. And Paul, before he got saved, was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. In his love for the law, 
He believed that it was blasphemy that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, so he persecuted the church to the point of arresting Christians to having them killed. He goes on to say that according to the law, he was blameless. Now, is Paul saying that he was perfect? No. We know from Romans 7, verse 7, that the law convicted him of covetousness. So inwardly, he was aware of the fact that he was a sinner, but outwardly, according to the Jewish standard, he fulfilled it blamelessly. So there wouldn't be other Pharisees that could come to him and say, you're disobeying the law. So that's how far he went in rules and regulation and religion. So here's your choice. Relationship with Jesus that's based on his grace and your identity as being a son and daughter of God that you know that you're loved by him or an identity that's based on rules and regulations and religion. Maybe you grew up in a church system that emphasized rules and regulations, that you've got to clean up the outside, you've got to look the part, you've got to speak Christianese, but it never dealt with the inward reality of the heart. And what's Jesus all about? He's about the heart. And he came and died for our sins and rose again, and we love him from our hearts, and he does the work from the inside out. It's interesting when you get a bunch of Christians together, we get really concerned about cleaning up the outside. You know, there's probably words that we wouldn't use here at church that we use other places, right? Because we're a church. But if you really stop and think about it, man, we want to go deeper than that, don't we? You know, so it's not just about the outside. It's about the heart. And religion always focuses on the outside, but God always focuses in upon that relationship. So let's look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. So the loss. He's saying, I'm losing this confidence in the flesh, this confidence in rules and regulations, so that I can gain Christ. He wants that relationship. And verse 8 says, Yet indeed, I also count all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So when we think about gain, winning, it has nothing to do with losing. I tend to be a little bit competitive. At least people have told me that before. I even like to win Candyland. I'm playing Candyland with my daughters. It's like, I'm going to play to win. You don't get freebies with dad, right? So it's probably true. I'm a little bit competitive. And so a win's a win. There's no loss in winning. You know, growing up playing sports, people would say, it's just a game, relax. You know, winning isn't everything. You know, I'd say, well, you know, it's just a lot more fun when you win. If If you're playing this for fun, then... Ultimate fun is winning. Well, anyway, so when the scripture says, well, you you lose to gain, that's counter my mentality. That's counter what I would would normally think. But Paul's saying, look, I'm going to lose. I'm willing to lose everything in my life so I can gain the excellent knowledge of Christ. He had the rules. He had the regulations. He had the law, but he didn't have a relationship with Christ. God called him by name and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God has a way of stripping us of everything that we're confident in in outside of him. So we put confidence in a church. 
he strips that away so that we're confident in him. We put confidence in a system of rules, a way of doing things. He strips that away so that we're confident in him. So that we lose that to where we can find the gain of of knowing Christ. So here's a challenging question. Is there anything in my life I'd be unwilling to lose in order to gain Christ? That's hard. So when it comes down to it, I've got a hold of this pretty tight. I wouldn't want to lose this. And Paul's saying, I'm willing to lose it all if it results in the knowledge of Christ. And then he makes this comparison, and he says the things that he's losing, he's counting them as rubbish. Now that rubbish, it it literally means dung, is what it means in in the Greek. It's the dump. That's what, if you picture that in your mind. You think, these things that I value so much in reality, they're just dung compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ. And if you've had God strip away something that you were really confident in, but then it resulted in greater relationship and knowledge of Jesus Christ, you go, oh, it's worth it. I used to trust in those rules. I used to trust in those regulations. I used to look to people. I used to look to myself. But now I'm trusting in Christ. And I love what's said in verse 9, and be found in him. That's what we sang tonight. I am yours. Isn't it great to know I've had a good day, I've had a bad day, I read my Bible, I didn't read my Bible, I sinned, I didn't sin, I am yours. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, I am yours. I'm found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's a righteousness that's imputed to us. It's given to us by Christ as we trust in faith. Then this moves into Paul's aim. When we've experienced relationship with Christ, when we experience his grace, it moves us that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's the direction of your life? What's really important to you? What do you want to get out of the rest of this year, the next five years? Hopefully it's this. I want to know him. I don't know what's going to happen politically. I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I, I can't have any guarantees in my family, but I want to know him. That, that's the direction of my life. That's my purpose is to be a worshiper and know him in a greater way. That's what I love about the word, love about who God is. You can read it over and over again and have your mind blown of the magnitude of Christ, but yet how Christ is so personal As Paul is writing this, it's estimated that he's already walked with God for 40 years. 40 years, the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, I'm waking up today and I want to know him. I want to know him in a greater way. That's the gain. That's the the purpose. I don't even think Paul, first and foremost, woke up and said, I want to win a bunch of people to Christ. I want to have an opportunity to teach a bunch of sermons, write books. I wasn't thinking, what creative thing can I blog about Jesus today? He woke up and said, from my heart of hearts, I want to know him. And specifically, the power of his resurrection. That Jesus is alive. That he's alive in my situation. That he's present in my my difficulties. This may seem like simple stuff, you know. After 40 years of walking with the Lord and being used by God, but Paul's saying, I still 
have more to know about Christ and the power of the resurrection, of what it really means that Christ is alive, that he's alive in me. And then he prays something, he declares something very bold, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul knew that in order for him to know Christ in a greater way, he would have to share in common the sufferings of Christ. That's what the word fellowship means. He says, I want to have fellowship in suffering. Every once in a while here at the church, there'll be two people that end up with the same physical difficulty. They didn't know each other prior, but they tend to find each other and they fellowship over that calamity. There's two men in our church that have had heart transplants. And I remember one Saturday night, I got to link them up. One normally comes Sunday, the other comes Saturday night. One gentleman came on a Saturday night. I was like, you two got to talk. And they had some really good fellowship for a long time because they've both been through a heart transplant. Now, we could empathize with that suffering. We have no idea what that's like to go through to, to have a heart transplant. And in a lot of ways with Christ, we don't understand his suffering until we suffer. We don't understand what Christ went through in his betrayal with Judas until we've been betrayed. Every suffering that we go through in life, we have an opportunity to understand Christ's suffering in a greater way. Could we say that every physical suffering that we go through, we could meditate upon the cross and in some way Christ experienced that with the physical agony that we went through? Could we say that every heartbreak that we go through in life, our hearts, our emotions, who we are internally, that Jesus has suffered in a greater way internally as he was upon the cross. Absolutely. And Jesus declared in Isaiah 61, it's speaking of Christ, that he came to heal the brokenhearted. He suffered to cleanse us from our sins, but he also suffered to be able to bring the healing to our hearts and our souls that we so desperately desire, and we can't find it anywhere else. It's only found in Christ. He knows. He understands. He's been through it. So every piece of suffering, every cross that we bear, has the opportunity to fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And Paul wants to know Jesus that bad that he prays it, that he puts it on paper. And then he says, being conformed to his death. There's something about the death of Christ that goes against our sinful flesh. Remember Jesus telling the disciples, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die upon the cross and rise again. Their idea of Jesus was that he was a Messiah that was going to conquer the Roman Empire. And Peter's like, no, you, you can't go suffer. You can't die upon the cross. And then Peter was rebuked by the Lord. And there's something inside of me that says, I don't want to die. I don't want to be conformed to the death of Christ. But Paul understood, he's saying, I want to be conformed to his death. I want to understand what it means to lay down my life for others. And so we find his aim. We find his mission statement to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and be conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're going to hit just a few more verses. It's the last thing that we find security in. We find security in the run. So, Security in relationship, security in rejoicing in the Lord, 
and then security that we're running in a forward direction. Not that I've already attained and already perfected. Can I get an amen from that? We have not attained. We're not perfected. There's a lot more room to grow. If Paul, who's walked with the Lord for 40 years, saying, guys, I've got a long ways to go, the same is true for us. And Paul says, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Isn't that awesome? Christ saved you for a reason. He saved you so that you could know him and be in relationship with him. He saved you to be able to use you. And Paul's saying, I want to lay hold of the reason for which Christ has laid hold of me. Jesus wants to be in relationship with me. I want to be in relationship with Christ. And I'm pressing on. And we see this forward motion in Paul's life. You have to see the personal aspect for Paul in Philippians 3. He was rejected by everyone he knew when he accepted Christ as his Savior. It wasn't like the Pharisees were like, I respect your decision. They hated Jesus. His family, his friends, everything that he knew, he lost all of that. And he could have easily gotten stuck in his past and all those that hurt him, plus all of his own mistakes of persecuting Christians. But he says, I'm pressing on. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Do you know where Satan wants our soul? In the rearview mirror, always looking back. Oh man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Wish I wouldn't have said that. Wish I wouldn't have acted that way. Oh, she really hurt me. He really abandoned me. I couldn't believe that they did this and they did that. Guess what? It's in the past. And Paul says, I've got a remedy for the past. Forget it. And that's not very culturally acceptable today. Culture says, go back and fix it. Go find that inner child and allow that inner child to receive, receive healing. Good luck if you ever find them. I don't know. You might be looking for a long time, right? Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm getting robbed. If I'm living in the past, it's destroying my life. It's giving me paralysis in the present. I'm paralyzed. I can't move forward. I'm completely stuck. And this is why it's a choice of the mind and not of the emotions. Because there's enough emotion to always get us to look back. But notice what he says here. He says, this is one thing I do. Remember from our message this Sunday, we heard the one thing that David did from Psalms 27. Do you remember? He says, one thing that I've desired to seek the Lord, to inquire of his beauty. And here, Paul's saying, if I get one thing done in my day and in my life, this is it. So it must be pretty important. It must be pretty easy for us to live in the past. The pain of our sin, the pain of other people's sin. He's saying, I'm forgetting it. I'm choosing to forget it. They're behind, and now I'm pressing ahead. I'm running. And church, there's security in running. There's ultimate security in running. And saying, God has a purpose for me today, and I'm pursuing Christ, and I'm pressing forward to the goal of knowing Christ in a greater way. So we wrap up in verse 15 and 16. 
Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. Notice it's not a feeling, it's a mindset, and it marks maturity. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if we're not thinking in a forward direction, then God is going to speak it to us. Right now, the Holy Spirit's beginning to speak to our hearts and saying, yeah, you're stuck in the past. In this area, you're stuck in regret. In this area, you're stuck in remorse. In this area, you're stuck in bitterness. It's not time to fix it. It's time to forget it. It's time to move forward. I've got something for you this evening. I've got something for you this day. It's time for you to start running. This is what I really want you to hear tonight. God is always a forward-moving God. Always. Always. He has a future and a hope. He's got a plan. He's not stressed. His hair's not falling out. He's moving forward. He's got a plan. He wants us to know him. He wants to use our lives to reach others. Verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So where we've gone, let's keep going. That's the essence of verse 16. Ultimate security, we find security in relationships, the body of Christ. We don't look to the body, we look to Christ, but relationships are important. We rejoice in the Lord. There's security in rejoicing in the Lord. And there's security in running. There's security in pressing forward. So respond how God has touched your heart. God's word is meant to be studied with our shoes on. What do I mean by that? Is we come with a heart that says, God, I want to do your word. I've read your word. Now I want to do it. So we have an opportunity to do that right now as we celebrate communion, to rejoice in the Lord. Maybe it's been a while since you've just sat at the feet of Jesus and been blown away by who he is, what he's done, that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. One of the things I love about communion is you can't take communion without your head being lifted. And the Psalms tell us that Jesus is the lifter of our heads. And as you take communion, celebrate the fact that you're in relationship with the Lord. Maybe tonight's the night that God meets you in a special way and you break free of the past. You say, you know, I'm going to forget it. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to press forward. So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we do look for security in so many different ways. We know it's, it's found in you. And as we move into this time of communion, would you really bless it? Would you minister to our hearts, bring application we do know that there's a real enemy, so would, would you bind Satan in ways that he's trying to rob God's word from our hearts and lives and being able to even twist it. We find tremendous freedom of being able just to focus on you, Jesus, to love you, to rejoice in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.